Um, so, so the, um, the, the, the paper here is a specific kind of, is dealing with a specific question. Um, and it's on compliance gap. So what do I mean by compliance gap? Um, so in this literature, in international relations, one of the central questions is um, how do these international institutions impact states' behavior, right? Um, states are sovereign entities, and how do these up there international institutions have any effect on um, national policies. And so over the last 10 years, I think more, we have really made lots of progress figuring out the causal mechanism in which international institutions could impact states. And this, the list of causal mechanisms has been growing. But with all this progress going on, I think one question that's lingering and that's very, very persistent is the realist challenge that you know, yes, you have telling, telling us a lot, you have been telling us a lot about the ways in which international institutions influence um, states' behavior, but at the end of the day, do international institutions indeed matter, right? And this question is particularly pronounced in the areas of environment as well as in human rights, right, where international institutions in these areas have been traditionally weaker, um, and in human rights, for instance, you know, states' own regulation, their treatment of their citizens have been traditionally guarded as, you know, um, states' national um, sovereignty. So the question is, do international human rights institutions have an impact on states' human rights practice? And so one um, really significant area of study recently in the past um, seven, eight years is um, it, exactly in human rights, um, empirical human rights research. And one finding that's really glaring, I think it's really alarming, one finding is that um, even though states have been signing on to international human rights inst uh, instruments, human rights um, agreement, states' behavior, human rights practice has been just consistently lagging. And in fact, there is a growing compliance gap in the sense that states signing on more and more human rights institution, uh, instruments, treaties, and agreements, and their behavior has not been improving, in fact, worsening. And so this, over the last 30 years, this, um, the, the literature, a, a number of researchers will, will contend over the last 30 years, this compliance gap, meaning between human rights commitments and human rights uh, practice, this compliance gap has been um, consistent and in some sense widened over 30 years. And so that calls into a question, you know, what's the effect of international human rights law and uh, what should we do about it? And it calls into question the efficacy of international law. And I guess the resulting policy implication a lot of times is that we need to give more teeth to international human rights institutions. And we need to emphasize more coercion and these harder approaches. So I guess the paper um, 
the purpose of this paper is to just look a little more carefully on a compliance gap because I think the subsequent, you know, the, the, the policy implications that have been really um, emphasized from this compliance finding, uh, the compliance gap finding, um, in my mind, sort of are problematic because we don't really know enough, I guess, about this compliance gap. So I want to look at this compliance gap a little bit um, um, carefully and the broader idea, the broader, um, I guess, challenge is to think a little bit about how and what are the appropriate sort of criteria by which we should evaluate these international human rights instruments. And yes, they are by and large very weak. What should be the uh, standard we should use to evaluate these human rights institutions? Um, so looking at this compliance gap, um, intuitively compliance gap, I mean, it's, you know, it, it just refers to this discrepancy between commitment and compliance. Essentially, discrepancy between words and deeds, what they say they do and what indeed they do, right? So that's what compliance gap um, intuitively means. Now, how do we capture this compliance gap um, empirically? So on the side of commitment, scholars have been looking at just how, um, how much are states endorsing human rights agreements, right? On the commitment side, the recent quantitative literature have been looking at um, just over the last 30 years, are states signing on more and more international human rights um, treaties? More and more countries are signing on to these treaties or not. And so this is a rough sort of picture of over the last 40 years, um, how overwhelming sort of states have been signing on to these um, major UN human rights agreements. For instance, these include the, um, uh, the Convention on Civil and Political Rights, the Women's Convention, Convention Against Torture, Convention on <coughs> Children's Rights, and the uh, Convention on Economic and Social, Economic and and, and social and cultural rights. And there's a racial, the Convention on Race. Um, so countries have been signing on to human rights in, uh, treaties more and more, and indeed that's the case it, as the quantitative literature has been emphasizing. Um, so that's on the commitment side. The picture is rather good. States are signing on to these treaties. Um, and so that's good news. On the com compliance side, we don't really have a good indicator about compliance um, with any of these agreements, right? That, that data is, you know, just we don't have that major uh, uh, data. And so a lot of times states, uh, country, uh, scholars have been focusing on a specific set of human rights. And recently, I think the most often used human rights indicators are these political rights, right? Um, and furthermore, even on political rights, I think you know political rights are also wide-ranging, right? Yeah. Um, but the data, it's only on um, a very small set of political rights, and so that's the data that called the political terror scale, um, and that 
I guess captures you know how often sort of it, it captures this these rates of extrajudicial killing and and pr prison uh, political imprisonment all these rates. So on the compliance side, um, there are two um, data sets. One very often used data set. One is the State Department data set, right, that tracks countries. You know, the State Department has an annual human rights report. The other data set is Amnesty International um, annual review. And so both on these well-used to sort of most frequently used data sets um, by the State Department measure human rights practice, no, I, again, it's just on the specific side of political rights, right? The political tariffs, uh, the, the political um, rights, practice on political rights have been sort of worsening on average um, over the years and uh, by Amnesty International's measure, this right, well, I guess, slightly improving, but not much, right? So this is on the compliance side. And so the literature tends to, I mean, it's to, I mean, the literature is trying to figure out what's the gap between compliance, uh, commitment and compliance. And so what some people did was to contrast the good news between commitment against the bad news about compliance. And so if you contrast, you through these two lines, the increasing better endorsement of human rights behavior that's, you know, that's ever increasing over the years, and the persistent sort of not so good human rights practice, um, that's the, almost a horizontal line. When you group these two lines together, map, map them against each other, um, that's where you get the bad news about the compliance gap. So the compliance gap over the years just gets larger and larger, and that's the basis for the recent um, review, I think in 2009, a big review in the world politics saying that the compliance gap on human rights issues just um, has been uh, persistently widening over the years. Now, I feel that this um, finding about compliance gap is sort of problematic, and any policy implications based on this accordingly would also be problematic. And the reason is, I think there's three reasons to look at um, the compliance gap a bit more carefully. And the first reason is that um, even if we focus only on specific sets of human rights, political rights, there are many different indicators and data sources. And so depending on which indicator we use, which data source we use, the, uh, the subsequent picture of, on compliance gap will be a little different. Um, and the second reason is that there are also many other types of human rights besides political rights. And you know, um, looking at these other types of human rights probably also yield different pictures. But the main point I really want to say is I think there are also conceptual problems with the compliance gap. But just let me go through these um, reasons one by one. So on the indicators and a data source, again, if we we'll just look at political rights, there's the political terror scale, yes, very often used. But at the same time, I think there, you know, so the political terror scale captures extrajudicial killing and prisoner, political imprisonment and things like that. But I guess political rights should also include just how free people feel and um, also how um, uh, political participation, whether or not, you know, it's not political, I mean, 
So, so you don't want to be thrown into jail because you protest, but also you want to um, have this infrastructure to be able to participate in political um, governance, democratic governance. Um, so, so two other indicators, two other uh, data sets that are frequently used. One is the Freedom House data on freedom, um, and the other is the Polity 4 data set on the governing institution, the quality of governing institutions to essentially capture the level of democracy. None of the data set is very perfect, is, is perfect in any way, but I think they should help shed light on some other aspects of political rights than just political terror scale. Um, so just a snapshot here um, the, on the political, on the Freedom House data. So this is what I did, I contrast the, uh, the endorsement, country's endorsement of civil and, and um, the Convention on Civil and Political Rights against the, um, the average freedom, right, based on the Freedom House data. And so one thing that's clear is that this compliance gap still is there, right, because the endorsement rises at a higher rate than um, the improvement in freedom, average freedom. So the compliance gap is there, but I think the, act, the, the magnitude of the compliance gap is a little different than the analysis based on just blue tariff scale. So this is, um, a con this is a contrasting the uh, endorsement of civil and political rights convention against, this is my making, sorry. Um, Right, so now I'm, I'm going to talk like this now. All right, um, so this is the, um, the, this is contrasting the endorsement of uh, Civil and Political Rights Convention against the, uh, the measurement of um, um, democracy, level of democracy. And again, the same story, the compliance gap, if you measure like that, it still exists, it widens over time, but the magnitude of compliance gap, again, is a little bit different uh, from the uh, analysis based on political terror scale. So the story I want to say over here is, the, 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 the bottom line here is, even when we focus on political rights, there are different aspects of political rights and different data set capture that aspect. And so um, analysis based on using um, different indicators and different, different data set give us a slightly different uh, picture. The other problem that I think we should um, address is that human rights are also diverse and, and there are political rights, there are also social economic rights and women's rights and children's rights and you know, so on. Um, so here are two examples. If we look at the economic and social rights, again, this, in this area, I think there's a big problem with data. We're talking about data availability. There's a big problem with data. But scholars have been using this human development index, which captures a bunch of things, including economic well-being. Um, so this is contrasting the endorsement of um, the Convention on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights against the um, improvement of human, in, human development index over the years. And again, the, the data issue is pretty big here. The human development index captures many things, including economic well-being, right? But the story, again, it's similar that the compliance gap is still there, meaning that the endorsement rises 
faster than the improvement in, um, in the um, human development, in, in economic, improvement in economic well-being. So this is the other example then is, um, oh, I may not have the latest um, graph, but so, so this is an example um, contrasting the endorsement of Women's Rights Convention against um, one indicator of women's rights, and that is the uh, women, um, average percentage of women in parliament, and average percentage of women in um, upper house. Um, I have an alternative graph where I contrast women's rights against, um, against um, uh, girls' education um, in school versus as a percentage of total children, um, total number of pupils in school. I think girls' education matter. Um, but that's not here, unfortunately. But the point, again, is that you focus on different type of human rights, the picture you get is different. Um, the biggest problem I want to focus on here is the conceptual problem. So I've been having lots of trouble articulating this conceptual problem, but I think here's a, a hypothetical sort of um, exercise. Now, imagine, you know, after a country signs a treaty, right? So what are the several scenarios? After a country signs a treaty, behavior improves, or behavior stays the same, or behavior worsens, right? In the best case scenario, after a country signs a treaty, behavior, the relevant um, behavior improves over time. So that's in the first case. Now, if we just imagine, we, you know, we forget about those cases where countries are forgetting about the treaties, they're not really following up with what they promised to do. We just focus on the best case scenario. All the countries are improving their behavior, right? So what should be the outcome there? If all the countries are behaving, uh, improving the, their behavior, I have these three cases, uh, three countries. Say, uh, say one country ratified at time point T1, and one, the second country ratified at time point T2, and, and third country ratified at time point 3, and I, I aggregate their behavior. So note that all these, all these three countries are improving their behavior right after they sign on to the treaty, and I aggregate these, their, their behavior and get an average behavior over these three time period. So that the bottom graph would be what I get out as an average of their behavior after they sign on to the treaty. So their behavior, the average behavior of these three countries are improving. So that's pretty good news, right? Um, but I think in the literature, what you'll find is this. What, what you'll find in the literature, I think it's this very com misleading compliance gap. What you find is the, the, the rising line, the blue line, it's where it's 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 sort of it's, it's an aggregate measure of how many countries have signed on to the treaty, right? And the bottom uh, these these bars, they're the average behavior. So if you contrast, I guess, a cumulative line against an average, so it doesn't matter how much you're improving the countries are improving their behavior. This way to capture the compliance gap will just necessarily lead you to this conclusion that compliance gap widens. And recall that we're, I'm, 
I'm assuming all these three countries are the good ones. They're improving their behavior. When you aggregate their behavior, on average, the average just doesn't rise as much as this indicator of how many countries sign on, right? Um, so, so I think, you know, in the literature, when we find this compliance gap this way, I think it's, 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 sort of, it's, it's misleading. And if you, you know, you derive policy implications from this, it's um, equally problematic. Um, so, I guess from here, you might wonder then, how do we understand the effect of um, international law, right? And I think there's a lot of confusion in the empirical human rights research. We all hear these um, um, calls that we need to be more systematic in human rights research. And I think we have been making lots of progress there. But I think a lot of times when people say, we need to be more systematic about human rights, empirical human rights research, what they have in mind a lot of times is that we need to include more countries in our sample. We need to have, instead of a, you know, a sample size of 20 countries, we need to have 100 countries. We need to have 200 countries in our data set. So that's one way to be systematic. And I think another way to be systematic that's just as important but not so well, so much emphasized is, is to be systematic about what is it we're expecting? What is it that we think human rights treaties, how they should generate some effect? Do we expect human rights treaties to generate positive effect in all 200 countries? Or do we expect them to work in you know, cases where certain conditions are, um, are met? And so, I guess I'm already biased. I'm saying that we probably should pay more attention to the process, to these conditions under which um, that um, human rights treaties could, should have an impact. Um, so what I guess I'm arguing that um, when we design empirical human rights research, we need to put the horse behind, before the wagon in a way. We need to have, I guess, a conceptual, some sort of more conceptual work done. And that is that for international human rights treaty or international human rights law to work, we really shouldn't be expecting that you know, states sign on to the treaty and subsequently behavior change. Between signing on to the treaty or ratifying the treaty and behavior change, there's just so much that, you know, those so many chains that really have to work before we see the, the, the actual behavioral change. And the reason behind this is there are two things I really want to emphasize. One is that these human rights treaties, by and large, are very weak. Um, and they're weak for a reason. And because they're weak for international human rights treaties to generate any effect at all, most of the time, you don't see um, very direct effect. What you do see is very often um, indirect effect. And so just let me elaborate a little bit on why is it that even though I'm saying international human rights treaties have an impact, why is it I'm saying they're weak? Um, I think human rights treaties are designed to be weak to start with, meaning that they don't have enforcement capacities. Um, and I'm saying that human rights treaties 
um, regulate states' behavior, states' behavior vis-a-vis -vis their own citizens, right? And so the victims of human rights noncompliance are typically their domestic citizens, and, and states do not really have very strong incentive um, to delegate lots of you know, authority to international human rights um, instruments, and as a result, I think human rights treaties typically are very, very weak, and states just not willing to delegate lots of um, um, authority to, to human rights treaties. And as a result, I think the, 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 the channels in which human rights treaties matter um, tend to be indirect, and these are the channels that have to work through their domestic sort of those who are abused, those who, have, who really genuinely have the incentive to see um, their state's compliance with the international human rights treaties. So these are the indirect channels that I think really are the most sort of potentially, um, um, are the channels that are really working to, um, for international human rights treaty to have any effect. So these are the, ch the, air, the, the channels through domestic, non-state actors, and they, I think these are feasible channels because it's the domestic citizens who are abused to potentially by their government that really genuinely have an interest in seeing compliance, their government's compliance, and they're also important because international human rights treaties are weak and they're, 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 they're not really designed, in, in my mind, to really enforce states' compliance. And so this channel through non-state actors is both feasible as well as important. Um, the two particular channels that I, I emphasized um, are the political clout, meaning you know, how mobilized these domestic interests, you know, human rights activism can, 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 can be, and the information channel, what sort of information they, they get and um, whether or not they could um, sort of know more about the policy process. And these are the two specific channels for, for this sort of indirect effect of human rights treaties to work. Um, I didn't look too much into the conditions, but I think the, the, for this sort of indirect effects to work, obviously, Obviously, it's not that whenever we have a treaty, whenever state signs on that treaty, effect just comes through, right? So for this sort of indirect channel to work, one obvious condition is that you have to have domestic mobilization. You have to have domestic you know, constituencies who actually see an invested interest in the human rights treaty and ha you know, find the need to utilize it and have the ability to utilize it. So two characteristics from this, uh, of this sort of indirect channel of influence. One is that the compliance, I think, uh, the compliance gap a lot of times is a natural process, natural part of the decentralized enforcement. A lot of times because the enforcement gap, the, the compliance gap is there that, you know, domestic groups could identify that compliance gap and cause you know, attention to uh, address that particular issue. So a lot, of a lot of times the compliance gap is the sort of the rallying point for subsequent uh, mobilization. Um, and the other characteristics of this indirect channel of influence is that the, this, this channel, of course, it's very past dependent and it's conditional. So when you have domestic abuse, domestic groups may or may not recognize the issue, may or not, may not have the, 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 the ability to, to take the issue up, right? Um, 
and when they do, whether or not they succeed, it's a function also of their, 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 their strengths and their strategies. And so it's very conditional. Um, oh, okay, so I guess in conclusion, um, I tried to recover some missing links, but there are a lot of other missing links. Um, the main thing that I, you know, I wanted to think further about, I haven't really articulated that, is what should be the standard by which we evaluate international human rights treaties? These are treaties that are weak, and we know they're weak, and these are, you know, so for instance, give me an example that, you know, in the empirical human rights literature, it's been found that you know treaties don't work as well as political change, um, but I don't know what that tells us. Treaties are also very cheap. How much do states spend resources on treaties, right? So these are sort of you know cheap instruments. How much do we want to get out of it? Um, how much do we expect to get out of them? Another thing also in doing, no, I, you know, I, I think I'll start taking notes. Perhaps you guys can give me some pointers about how is it we should evaluate these weak institutions. What do you think should be um, sort of what the institutions can do, these weak ones can do? Thank you. very first time speaking with this song. Right. I'm not. Would you? No, absolutely. Can I speak there? I think that works. Okay. So the aim of the paper, as you start, state at the beginning, is to contribute to this debate in two ways. First off, by arguing for uh, clarification of the concepts of commitment and compliance. And the other way is arguing for a uh, better analysis of the causal mechanisms behind any theoretical claim. And I think the paper successfully argues for both these things. And it, it does a nice job at showing how um, one is the complement of the other. So you can't have clear mechanisms unless you start from clear concepts. However, I think that in the process of pushing this literature um, towards thinking long and hard about their um, uh, concepts and their mechanisms, you end up challenging this body of literature even more than you give it credit uh, to the paper for. And, and, and this is evident for me in two, in two instances. The first, uh, the first thing is what emerges from the paper, from my perspective, is that the compliance gap is good news for some of us. It's good news for you, and it's good news if we believe that there are domestic mechanisms that um, are behind compliance rather than the carrot and sticks one um, that others have posited. And, and the reasoning is the compliance gap is nothing but a time lag between commitment and compliance, which has two implications. If commitment didn't mean anything, like Jana von Stein's uh, paper argues, then we shouldn't see a compliance gap. States should start complying even before signing if commitment didn't mean anything. But more specifically, 
one they, once they um, commit to something, um, if, if, we, um, if we marry a domestic explanation, we know that those, those treaties will stay dormant until some constituencies uh, spring, springs to action and, and actually decides um, to use them. What this means for the whole literature on, on uh, human rights is that different, uh, if, if different mechanisms entail different empirical implications, then different pieces of evidence can be supportive of one explanation and not the other. The compliance gap is not a problem for everybody that deals with human rights. And secondly, and this is more um, related to the concepts, um, it emerges at multiple times throughout the paper that the issue of human rights is different than other issues. Issues such as alliance commitment, alliance compliance, trade commitment, trade compliance. And yet, we import in this literature on human rights these concepts that have this huge baggage insofar as we've been thinking about them in other contexts. Um, you cannot retaliate if someone violates a human treaty. Um, there's no most favorite nation uh, principle to abide by. And, and then again, the differences are even more profound. You cite Alison Brisk um, on, on how, on the shifting benchmark to, um, to analyze compliance with, with uh, uh, female genital mutilation um, treaties. And so I wonder if the issue really is, can we still talk about compliance when it comes to human rights, or shall we try and think of different categories um, to conceptualize it? And uh, finally, um, um, I think that there's one, I was, I was sold on the argument, um, but I, on, on, on the domestic um, um, determinants of compliance, but I wondered throughout the paper how this, um, how these treaties end up becoming sticky, or if, if, if we, um, if we, uh, have this approach and we look at the domestic constituencies, does it mean that we're conceptualizing these human rights treaties as something that you can switch on and off depending on the level of commitment of domestic constituencies to defending them or, or are, there, are there ways in which they become sticky? And that's all I have. That's not a legal problem, that's, okay. that's a societal problem. Sure. 
Right. Oh, you're touching upon really much larger, I guess, phenomena. None of these measures I'm using, I'm not really, I'm, I'm, I'm using these measures, but I'm not really using, I'm not really addressing, for instance, what explains, what explains this, you know, for instance, girls are lagging in education than boys. So the, I use compliance. Well, they can't blame the state. The state has ratified this. The people don't comply with what they've ratified. It's not the state's fault. Right. So I guess, so, so you're, you're raising a very good question about whether or not these indicators that I use really clearly, correctly, captures state's compliance with the treaty, right? So, um, and, and I think that's, that's a great, great question. Um, in the, in the literature, especially in the recent growing um, quantitative large-gen literature, so they're looking at, you know, 100 countries or 200 countries, and everybody knows the compliance indicators are very weak. Everybody knows that we don't really have that perfect, I'm sorry? Um, no, I, I don't want to say that all the, no, no, I don't think they're nonsensical. I think it is interesting, it's useful to gauge, like overall, do we have a pattern, right? Our, you know, our states, how are states doing in, along these indicators, right? Um, how are states doing in sort of girls' education, even though we know that the outcome of girls' education is a product of so many different things, right? But I think that, in, you know, just to, 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 to have a, you know, broader picture about how are girls doing in education across all these 200 countries tells us something. Whether or not, you know, it tells us states compliance with treaty, I have the same doubts as you do. <laughs> Right. So, I, are we? I mean, I think people working in this area. I'm not saying that I'm, you know, one of those people who really articulate. We really have to include all these 200 countries in the data set. I'm actually, you know, I think because of the data issue, whatever we derive out of such studies focusing on 200 countries would be sort of, you know, very rough, right? Um, but I guess I'm not trying to. I'm not ready to say that. You know, they tell us nothing. I'm not doing that type of research, and I have my doubts, and I'm bringing my doubts to you. I'm saying, you know, it doesn't really tell me a great deal about state's compliance. But um, since I'm not doing that research, I'm very reluctant to say that it's not good. Daniel, you can say it, but... I read questions. I just read questions. I don't make, you know, judgment calls. But. Right. I'm really impressed by, you know, your suggestion that we should problematize how we think about um, the effects of international law institutions and what we mean when we say they work or they don't work. Right. Um, but when we focus on indirect effects, mm -hmm. while it makes a big empirical contribution, I wonder if we are not back to the real world 
And mm -hmm. then, in that sense, isn't that a contradiction to think for? Because initially you start off by saying, really, this challenge persists. Mm -hmm. So doesn't mm -hmm. the interactive fact and the focus on that actually perpetuates the realist challenge? And on a related note, um, normatively, you said, I mean, the concluding sentence was, I think, that we have to assess these institutions and our legal rules within decentralized enforcement and maybe perhaps change our standards? And to what extent should we be changing them? I mean, isn't the goal of making these laws and creating these institutions to actually create concrete policy change, whether or not we have enforcement or not? Isn't that the point of making law? To have something that's not based on enforcement? And if you change that, what are the normative implications of wondering? No, I, I, those are great suggestions. The very first one really, I, I think, is essentially where I left off, right? So what are the standards by which we evaluate these international human rights institutions? Really, um, my feeling is that, you know, we did, I, we have a number of good studies um, in the past demonstrating these effects of treaties, right, in isolated cases. And we don't, recently, some, you know, this recent large-end study suggests that, you know, those demonstrated effects in isolated cases are just not enough. We want treaties to be useful, not only in 10 countries, we want them to be useful in 200 countries, right? And so that's where I think this task is particularly urgent, that we need to figure out what's the right criteria by which we evaluate these treaties. Do we really want treaties to have, you know, do we really expect, reasonably expect treaties to have such enormous effect on all 200 countries? Or do we expect, you know, treaties to have such giant effect in a subset of countries, but the effect has to be big enough as to pull up the global average? Right, meaning, you know, when you average the effect of all of the treaty amongst all these 200 countries, this effect has to be significant. Even though the treaty does not have effect on a large number of countries, that must mean the treaty has a giant effect on certain set of countries, right? So is this the right standard? And I'm saying no, probably not, right? But what is the right standard? In my mind, I think treaties are very weak, right? They're, they're very not costly. They're, not, they're, 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 they're cheap in a way. I mean, so you shouldn't expect treaties to have, to human rights treaties to have the same effect as political change, uh, regime change, right? For regime change, how much does it cost us to send troops to Iraq and, you know, to, 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 to produce a regime change? These are two different kind of instruments in terms of cost. Um, I didn't have a chance to read the paper, so my two comments might have been answered there. But I guess two things that strike me. First, um, you alluded to the fact that human rights treaties are different than other kinds of treaties, economic treaties, military treaties, and so on. And I wonder if part of the difference is the nature of the commitment that's involved. Because when you're making commitments to allies or trade partners and so on, you're making a commitment to them right. that you'll behave toward them in a certain way. Whereas the human rights treaty, you're in a sense making a commitment to yourself, right? And, and that seems like a very different kind of ball game and where the expectations, and I very much agree with you that the expectations should be lower in that case. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the human rights abuser is like the cigarette smoker. He might commit to, you know, I'm going to sign a 
pledge to not smoke cigarettes, but you know, it's just a bad habit, and they just keep doing it. And to the to the extent your wife catches you, you know, saying that That's she true. can use it against you and produce some positive change. That's true, but it's basically, <laughs> it's basically an internal problem, though. I guess. So I'm wondering if the nature of the commitment is different. So that was the one comment. But the other thing, and this goes to your question about standards, mm -hmm. it seems to me that a lot of human rights treaties are really in the category of aspirational law. Right. They're really we would like to have this situation. There's no expectation that we're actually going to get there really quickly. And if it's aspirational law, then you would expect a time lag. Um, and in that sense, we should not have not use the same standards, basically, as we do for most treaties, because the purpose of the law is very different. Right. No, I, I agree with you. And I think um, the Human Rights Treaty, in that sense, you know, is different from other type of treaties, where the enforcement force, the enforcement source is different. When it comes to trade or security issues, the enforcement source is from these other countries you make contractual agreement with. But in human rights, the source of enforcement comes from within. It's your domestic you know, uh, constituencies. And so I think the enforcement mechanism or the enforcement dynamics in human rights is entirely different from these other situations. Of the leadership and right. Have that. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the will, I, mean, I, I, I think that's probably why human rights treaties are weak to start with, right? Because states are unwilling to subject themselves to these sort of treaties, right? Un unwilling to give so much authority to human rights treaties, which comes back home and hunt themselves, right? So, so there's the will. And the other um, thing is about this um, standard. Right, yeah. So I think a lot of them, human rights, you know, we, the Human Rights Treaty, for instance, is giant. Everything is inside the political and civil right. Everything is covered over there. So I totally agree with you. It's aspirational. So then, therefore, even if we have the right data, we can't just <laughs> demand all the countries are in perfect compliance with these treaties. How many of us are driving exactly at 35 miles per hour on the street where it says 35 miles? as a speed limit. What? So, so therefore, I think, I think it's wonderful that we are being systematic, we're doing this you know, study and checking all, whether all 200 countries are doing what they said they would do. But at the same time, I think it's wrong-headed. Right? And these are not the treaties that that really states should be bringing themselves right away to compliance with. Uh, sure. Um, so just to even further give you another argument, more fuel on the fire for that, which I think is a relatively convincing claim, is that the main mechanism that I think about uh, these treaties as working through would be sort of pegging, sickings, kind of boomerang, and, and you talked a little bit about how domestic actors might pick these things up. Um, but one, one point would be that it's not just domestic then, because I can imagine that this, that, um, so let me just say something more precise, okay. I can think of three indicators that would convince me that these treaties are actually effective, going along with Professor Mueller's skepticism. One would be memoirs of domestic actors where they say, we signed that treaty and then we felt guilty afterwards, so we decided not to commit that massacre. The second would be citations of the treaty by domestic activists who say, you signed this treaty, now don't commit this massacre. 
And then the third would be in, within international organizations, actual UN officials using the treaty to put pressure onto, um, yeah. you know, basically statesmen and, and policy elites from the top down. So it wouldn't just be that there would be a domestic thing. But what leads me to think is I agree that all three of those mechanisms would be kind of weak, um, and I'm skeptical that you're going to find quantitative indicators that are going to be anything like that or anything that would actually capture that mechanism. So I think just doing that would be um, interesting enough. Um, but secondly, it sort of introduces a, an even deeper timeline. Um, you know what I mean? Because the timeline gets worse because there's a lag already just because there's a lag between ratification and behavioral change. But now there's a lag because the mechanism itself has a lag built into it. So we might see a double lag, which means that we might actually be overshooting the expected um, effects of these treaties, which just sort of leads me to my general skepticism that these treaties are doing anything other than acting as an aspiration. And one of the slides that you put up sort of pumped my intuitions a little bit. You put up a slide where you compared ratification rates to the polity data. Mm -hmm. There was a real significant bump for both of them right mm -hmm. at 1990. Mm -hmm. And then so I was thinking maybe the institutions and the treaties aren't doing anything here. And what's really doing something is a larger historical process about the rise of liberalism, um, which isn't actually driven necessarily by these treaties at all, but it's driven by a completely exogenous process of states looking to the United States as being the beacon of hope and beauty in the future. And that process is sort of, I mean, obviously that process goes through institutions, but it's separate from institutions, if you see what I mean. So maybe these treaties just don't matter at all for those indicators that you're, that you, that you even look at, which I think mm -hmm. I agree are better than the political terror index or whatever, mm -hmm. but still aren't as good as the interpretive indicators that I, that I would yeah. find. Yeah, yeah. I think there, really, you, you really, you point to a really um, serious tension, I think, I guess in the broader literature. I actually agree with you. I think these mechanisms, I mean, in my own work, those three mechanisms you looked at, in my own work, I look at how domestic citizens, domestic constituencies, you know, resort to, to treaties sometimes to advance their own agenda domestically, right? So that's the mechanism I look at. Um, and that involves sort of really going in depth in very many specific cases. And I totally agree with you. And I think that, you know, we're unlikely to come up with quantitative indicators that are, you know, really good quality capture this process of how rights are being, uh, treaties are being resorted to and how domestic groups sometimes succeed and sometimes fail, right, in utilizing the, the human rights treaties to advance their domestic specific agenda. So the, the tension then, therefore, is what's the right approach to address these type of questions? And I agree with you. The measure of endorsement of this uh, um, convention of political uh, and civil rights, and that, that, that line mapped against the, uh, the level of democracy, it really doesn't tell us a great deal, no. No causation over there, right? So this large scale, I guess, quantitative indicators, I haven't really found anything that are really needing the causal mechanisms. And so perhaps the right way to approach it isn't really we have to subject 200 countries to this question. Maybe it shouldn't be quantitative. But I don't, because I'm not doing quantitative research, I don't want to be the one saying that. I believe I'm right, but I don't want to say it out loud. <laughs>
question is related to the last question. Um, I was wondering if you could say more about how exactly human rights should empower domestic actors. So it's like neither in the paper not nor in the presentation, mm -hmm. but I see the power in that empowerment that you talk about. I think it's a motivational issues maybe, uh, right. or even if you're referring to the boomerang effect, that's I don't see that the power there, that the source of that power mm -hmm. is really the treaty, but other states and other NGOs that are already so right. I couldn't really see how the treaties empower domestic um, domestic yeah. Right. Well, you didn't see it. It's because it didn't have much in here. Right. So, I was <laughs> so it's not your fault. Right. Your right. Um, yeah. Uh, so I don't have much of that in here. Uh, although I did did I did do some work related to exactly that question. How these international human rights agreements weak as they are, meaning they can't enforce. A lot of times they don't even have the ability to monitor states' compliance with agreements at all. So weak as they are, how do they generate any effect, if at all? And so the argument, my argument would be that these treaties, weak as they are, they could, under certain circumstances, generate domestic effect if domestic groups <laughs> utilize these treaties, right, to advance their, their, their agenda. And so, um, one case that I looked carefully into is this, um, um, the Helsinki process. Um, that was an agreement between the United States and, you know, Soviet bloc and the Western European countries. And they signed this treaty in 1975, essentially to, for the Soviets, that was stabilizing sort of geopolitical you know, boundaries. But for the Western, you know, especially Europeans, not so much for the Americans, for the Western Europeans, that was a treaty where they put in all these human rights uh, provisions, right? Freedom of speech and, and um, uh, you know, um, restrictions on prisoner, uh, prisoner, prisoner, political prisoners. Um, so, so that treaty, I think, in, you know, it's in a lot of ways, I think it's sort of, um, it wasn't really expected to generate much effect, but in reality, it did have a lot of effect on the Soviet human rights movement. And I think there are a number of ways that human rights groups really resorted to that treaty. I think one, one thing that the treaty did was sort of legitimizing certain demands that human rights groups made, right? Um, made some things that previously um, sort of unthinkable, justified. Another thing is that the, the treaty also just enabled human rights groups to sort of legitimize, I mean, strategically use that treaty. Some of the groups used the treaty to advance their national interests, and some of the groups used the treaty to advance their, you know, religious interests. Um, another thing I think the treaty did that I thought it was probably significant was that the treaty also sort of offered this focal point, right? Different groups in the Eastern Bloc, right, resort to the treaty, but essentially the treaty give them a common banner. You're, you're advancing your national interests or religious interests or whatever, so they can all essentially unify, uh, you know, under the banner of human rights, and that was an important thing. One thing also that the treaty, I think, is in a way, I guess, um, not so much emphasized in the literature is the treaty also of, um, has these informational effects, right? So there are several types of information that the treaty enables to help the human rights groups to gather. One is 
what's the right standard, right? And what's the right criteria by which we evaluate it, if it's, or, you know, our country's government's behavior against, right? That's one type of information. Another type of information is, you know, the, the treaty through these review meetings, every few years they have a re review meeting where government delegates as well as, you know, sometimes the human rights groups also sneak in, you know, through these dis discursive channels. And they bring information to the conference and the, the, the information also further disseminated from the conference and that information, you know, about, for instance, the, hum, the human rights, actual human rights condition in these countries, um, and um, and essentially just you know current conditions. So there are a number of, I think, informational channels too, that originating from this weak, very weak instrument. I think the Helsinki Protocol, for instance, uh, the Helsinki Accord wasn't even a treaty, wasn't even a formal treaty, right? Um, but I mean, I'm focusing on a particular set of effects from that treaty. I mean, the treaty has other, but that gives you an example, I suppose, you know, in what ways that a treaty can be linked to some domestic effect. The treaty doesn't generate that effect if we did not have the human rights activists already in Soviet Union. The treaty didn't create any human rights activism, right? The, human, the treaty empowered, enabled, give them an extra instrument, I guess, to use. That's just an example. Yeah. Okay. Some of these treaties have uh, committees that monitor compliance. Right. And uh, they must report to them. Is there any research at all that uh, indicates uh, whether these have any impact or whether there's sort of major differences in the way they're composed? The role of these monitoring bodies yeah. in the treaty, how is they any, have. Is there any research comparing them and indicating whether any of them have any impact? Um, I'm not really I've never, making any. I've never you seen know, yeah. I, I guess, um, I, you know, in my own work, I didn't really compare a particular monitoring organization with another one in terms of the effect on compliance. But in the Soviet case, for in, the, in the Helsinki case, for instance, I think the information gathering, the information, dip, it's, it's like, you know, all sorts of information come over, come, comes over here to the treaty uh, review meetings and further gets disseminated. And you see that information being utilized on the ground in domestic setting. That's an example where the treaty's informational channel did I guess have an effect, but I, I don't really know. Are you familiar with sort of comparison of these information channels? And maybe some treaties have these monitoring bodies, and the monitoring bodies didn't really generate specific effect, right? You, you were saying. You compare treaties that have one and treaties that don't to see if the compliance picture looks different. Uh, right. Most of the the universal ones, though, like the ones that you had up there, do have. Mm -hmm. But they mm -hmm. actually vary in terms of how much power they have. Some can initiate, right. some an individual can, can bring an issue before the committee. Others, the committee can actually initiate sort of an investigation, mm -hmm. and others mm -hmm. just have periodic reviews. So that right. would be really interesting to see, yeah. compare across the oversight bodies or lack thereof. No, 
I, th I think that would be really interesting comparing these bodies, but I guess I would also add that whether or not that information channel actually generates the effect depends on who is the recipient of that information and what, that, what does that recipient of that information do in a domestic setting, right? So, uh, you know, sometimes we have these monitoring bodies at the international level. The information sends out doesn't seem necessarily to generate specific effect on the ground, and whether or not that generates specific effect, I think in my mind, I think depends on what, who actually resorts to the information and do something about it, right? Uh, okay, comment and then uh, So first of all, I thought the contrast between uh, the news I'm seeing with Syria and Libya about the way uh, domestic constituents might be able to mobilize right. using treaties or anything else uh, to try to improve the human rights uh, performance in that country. The contrast between that and the mechanism that you uh, articulated in this article and some of your other work was striking to me in that it just, I hope the domestic mechanism is not the only one that we have to ensure countries who sign on to international human rights agreements actually comply with them. Because if we take political repression and information manipulation and monopoly seriously, in the places where human rights improvements actually, I think, matter, not in Western Europe. Um, that, that domestic mechanism to me is um, not one I'd want to hang my hat on, analytically uh, mm -hmm. or normatively. So I just wanted to sort of speak my mind on that. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I would say is, is I very much agree with uh, um, what Eleanor said and what you said uh, in the Q&A about this really being a timeline problem, that the expectation here it's less to me that, that people have gathered data on 200 countries and thrown it in uh, with some bad measures. And it's not to me the scope of what countries are being measured. It's this expectation that there should be a rapid compliance after the initial commitment that just seems utterly insane and unrealistic. Right? I just can't believe that, that you know, got off the ground. You know, so I guess to me what I would like to see in the literature is um, in, in appreciation of this time lag, uh, yeah, right, that we need theories that take sequence and time seriously and theorize them and, and say, well, first, you know, if it's a domestic mechanism, first there's has to be a delegitimization process of the sort of national narrative that justifies human rights oppression. Then there has to be civil society that grows. Uh, then there has to be maybe tactical concessions. And if we could actually, first of all, build theories that take sequence and build it into the theory, then you can come up with measures that look for measures along the way, along that pathway. Right. Um, to me, that, that would be the next step to more realistically assess how compliance is going to match with the commitments in the And hopefully, maybe make our measures a little bit better in the process. Right, right. That's great. That's great. On the time lag thing, I, I do have to acknowledge that I think empirical scholars do pay attention, some of them do pay attention to the time lag. What they do is that they still have these 200 countries in there. They measure, you know, treaty uh, ratification, and um, they regress sort of, you know, they, they have their independent variable instead of the compliance in that particular year, they say, well, is it good enough? I give you five years, so let's measure, you know, behavior five years later after compliance. That's or is that good enough? enough? How about 10 years? Let's throw in another one. That's not yeah, yeah I, I, I totally agree with you. I just want to point out that the time lag, you can find it in the regression sometimes. Um, 
But the other thing, the first question, I think is, you know, I, I think it's, it, it touches on a really larger issue, and I don't really know how to deal with that. Because I guess my um, project so far is really just looking at how treaties, how should we evaluate treaties effect, right? So to the extent that these weak treaties have any effect at all, I'm saying it works through these domestic channels. Now, is that good enough, right? You know, it isn't enough, right? It isn't enough, but I'm just saying, well, if that's not enough for the international community, international community should come up with some costly enterprise, and they're willing to really spend the money on there and, you know, generate some effect. They cannot, on the other side, say, well, you know, we, have, we don't want to spend anything, but we, we want these weak instruments to have specific, you know, powerful effect. That, doesn't work. I guess to really generate effect, and, the, and if the treaty doesn't really do it quite right, then you need to really commit and find other alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. 
I think over there, when we talk about compliance, we usually we don't really talk about you know whether states are in compliance or not in compliance. This compliance is such a continuous variable; it's a degree of conformity with um, with the treaty. But it's, so you, you raise a number of really good questions, and it, this will be very helpful. But one thing that you've mentioned about this added value of human rights treaties, and I think it's it, it a tricky thing. I mean, am I satisfied with the human rights e treaties effect? I mean, no. I mean, a lot of times they don't really get picked up, and they're not really generating much effect. And so, but there are cases where they are picked up. So that goes back to the question: How should we evaluate the effect of of these treaties? And I'm, you know, another related question is: You know, am I back to a realist, to saying that these treaties are actually not doing much anything? I mean, I'm being, a, I guess, I'm realistic. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Can you quick comment on the time lag? Sort of related to the question too. Um, in, in a way, I sort of disagree with Austin and Leonora to some extent mm -hmm. because there are instances where treaties that involve human rights provisions make an immediate effect. So in that case, you can easily see, you know, whether there is compliance or there isn't compliance. You know, Helsinki may may not be an example for this, but um, accession treaties to the European Union are good examples. Of course, there's a benefit at the end, but some of those instances, they don't take time at all. There's, a law needs to be passed, you know, that's sort of the first step in the compliance process, and the question is whether the government passes that law or not. And then what happens to that law? How is it administered domestically, say, by the police, etc.? So the timeline actually might only apply under certain conditions, right. which is a whole different question. Right, right. In a European case, I mean, with the session, you would, someone would, could argue that compliance, if in fact, occurs before, right? This accession. No, to the accession treaty, there is compliance. To the accession treaty, whether compliance mm -hmm. takes place to European law, that's another question that mm -hmm. happens only after accession, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the accession to, it's the compliance with the conditionality agreements. I see, I see. So is that usually happening right away? I mean, doesn't domestic legislation also take some time? But it doesn't take 10 years, right? Right. The process yeah. of accession yeah. takes 10 yeah. years, maybe, but yeah. it doesn't take 10 years. And for yeah. Turkey, it takes even longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are yeah. different. Yeah. Tunisia, 
Egypt, I mean, you don't see much of the, the treaties being invoked there, right? To, to justify what's happening. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, and Britain, France, and the US didn't need European right, a human right treaty to become democratic, right? So there is a definite domestic, you know, uh, thrust there. But, yeah, you know, you tend to attribute that to the treaties. But the treaties are just there, and, 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 and it's not even a lie. They are on totally different courts, right? different dynamics. There's an international dynamic which works on sticks and, and carrots, and then you have the domestic dynamic which has its own, and the two could be orthogonal. Right? So when that's, that's why it's very important. Your question is very important. How do you measure the impact of treaties? Mm -hmm. Well, you have to take into account the domestic impact. Mm -hmm. And even going further, I mean, Bentley um, uh, was mentioning, you know, what uh, the treaties are irrelevant. But those countries are just trying to integrate the United States because this is the, the economic hegemony in the world. Basically, if you want to be, be good, if you want to, you know, to deal with American companies, you, know, you can do that. Which means that you know, those behind those treaties is a spurious variable, which is basically the Western model, the norm. Right? And the treaties are just one consequence of that. And the fact that countries want to integrate the US is another consequence of that. They are operating in parallel. You're giving me a bigger challenge than I can face. You always do, by the way. Um, but, but I guess, um, so, so I guess my, my premise is I'm looking at human rights treaties, and human rights treaties, in my mind, never ever work through carrots and sticks. They're just so weak. And so, I guess my task is to figure out these treaties are very weak. Why do we bargain so hard about them? And why do we care so much? Why do we negotiate so much? Why do we have so much problem really wanting to, to have anything to do with it? And so I guess what I'm saying, treaties have effect through direct channels a lot of times, like the GATT and WTO, right? There are these carrots and sticks. Sometimes treaties work that way, but in human rights, treaties don't work through the direct channels, through carrots and sticks. In human rights, treaties, in my mind, work. They work through these domestic channels. They work when domestic groups resort to them and utilize them and do something about it. I look into these cases. I look at how human rights. It's not because a country becomes democratic that a treaty works. I'm sorry? It's, it's not because a country becomes democratic or dependence torture that right. the treaty worked, mm -hmm. whether directly or indirectly. Indirectly, we would know. Right? Directly, we could, we, could, we could see a causal mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. With the US or other countries applying pressure mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. getting quick purple. But if it is indirect, how do we know it has anything to do with the treaty? Well, but couldn't you also trace whether or not domestic agents resort to the treaty and okay, in its place? Look at Tunisia, Egypt, Libya. Do you see the treaty? Do you see the well, treaty? No. Don't we have to distinguish between human rights practices versus sort of human rights emergencies or crises or something like that? Right? We wouldn't necessarily expect Dramatic right. event that the trees would matter be more. So I don't know if you meant. Now you know who is my friend. I 
Thank you, Alex. <laughs> You answered it for me. <laughs> really? Um, no, but I think part of the answer is, you know, that if you if, if you do spell out the causal mechanism that you mentioned, then you have all sorts of observable implications along right. the way. Right. So you have to come up with some that didn't match right. the strictly domestic story, right? Mm -hmm. I really like that distinction of these three mechanisms. Yeah. Thank well, I had a question. Um, so, well, one, if the good news for the compliance gap is that we're running out of countries, right? Right. So, <laughs> the future is bright for the compliance gap. Just invade a few more and it'll be gone. Well, no, 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 what I was saying is because the denominator can't get any bigger. Right. Um, so, but, my, my real question, though, is, um, and I think this is something you thought about, but I can't remember if it's in your book or not, which is, why would governments go along, I mean, are, assuming your domestic mechanism is right in the context of human rights, why would governments want to sign these treaties if right. it's going to come back to haunt them? Because you right. said explicitly that in these cases, it's generally not in the interest of the, of the, the government, the actual mm -hmm. provisions of the treaty. So what, what's the story? I mean, are governments just... They're signing or ratifying the treaty to satisfy other political mm -hmm. needs, mm -hmm. and they're willing to suffer the potential consequences down the road, mm -hmm. and they discount the future, or is it sort of a mistake? Yeah, that's a very good question. It, it, I think in the in the Soviet case, in the Helsinki case, I think that the, the the Soviets and the Eastern Bloc were driven to really solidify the geopolitical boundary, and there was indication of miscalculation because the Soviet foreign minister, at the time, was sort of refuting some of the suggestions that you know you don't really you shouldn't really include human rights problems uh, provisions in that treaty, and the prime minister essentially said no. This is not going to even create a ripple. So it didn't really expect any of these, these effects. So that seems to be, I guess there are two stories. One, there's the trade-off. I guess when we sign a treaty, we're trading one dimension against another. And the other is that there is the information, incomplete information. There's the potential of uh, miscalculation. But I so guess. Until they read your paper. Right. I mean, Dick, yeah. I think I think <laughs> didn't Duncan? I think Duncan Snell in one of the papers suggested, you know, perhaps countries are learning. Perhaps China is learning about all these potential effects with human rights treaties, and that's why China is not ratifying the Convention on Civil and Political Rights. Maybe, maybe these papers have this, you know, um, unintended negative consequences. We're teaching states to learn too much. Great. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Great comments.